Welcome to the Museum of Femininity, a podcast exploring themes, material, culture and stories that relate to the struggles and triumphs of women, both past and present. Welcome back to the Museum of Femininity. Today I would like to kick off a new series exploring the history and lives of women who worked as male impersonators in the mid-19th century to the early 20th century. I think it is important to highlight stories of women who truly pushed against gender roles and lived exciting and independent lives in very public ways. Male impersonators originated in London in the 19th century and were commonly seen performing in musicals, in vaudeville or variety shows. They were often comedic in nature and featured women changing their voices and appearance to suit a broad variety of different characters. They were hugely talented and could also sing and dance. In this episode, I will focus on an early iteration of this genre and will be looking mainly at America in the later half of the 1800s. Male impersonating acts started in America in the 1860s. Often male and female impersonators were the highest paid acts in vaudeville and attracted large crowds to the theatre. There are considered to be two generations of male impersonators in the entertainment industry. The first ended in the 1880s and the second mostly veered away from America and took place in England in the still flourishing music hall scene. There were many differences between these two groups as repertoire and audience taste changed over the decades. The first generation often followed a certain physical type They were women who were stocky and had masculine passing features, meaning if they were to leave the house dressed as men, uh, no one would have given them a second look. Until the 1880s, male impersonators were also commonly older women who studied the fashions and mannerisms of men, transforming themselves into their alter egos by embodying men in every aspect as well as through their singing. The first American male impersonator I will be discussing is one of the earliest, Annie Hindle, who was born in England in the 1840s and started her career in the London music hall scene, where she enjoyed a successful act playing multiple characters, including men and women. She would also perform quick changes and could masterfully alter her voice to suit her role. As was common for performers of this type, Annie often depicted a swell, a young wealthy man who was impeccably dressed. A few years later, Annie and her mother emigrated to America, where, at just the age of 20, she took her unique act to the stage. Annie's performance was also made even more interesting following her elimination of female characters. Annie sung about love and courting, as well as touching on social and economic issues of the era by taking on upper and lower class roles, as well as depicting a variety of ages and, slightly problematically, would perform as different ethnic groups as well. She took her act all over the country and would have travelled from town to town performing to large working class audiences, who were often made up of rowdy men demanding to be entertained and feel some sort of personal connection with the show, hence why Annie drew on so many diverse sources. When reading accounts of the time, it is clear she was a huge hit and entranced the audience with her deep alto voice and the uncanny realism of her male persona. 
a review of one of her performances at the Adelphi Theatre in Galveston, Texas, noted, quote, Annie Hindle has proved a great success. As a male impersonator, her sex is so concealed that one is apt to imagine that it is a man who is singing, end quote. She was also able to masterfully interrupt her own songs with comedic one-liners and interact with the audience, sharing advice on how to win a lady's heart, which was a common trope in male comedians of the time. Unquestionably, people would have been drawn to her act because she was so open about the fact she was actually a woman, which would have made the realism of her impersonation all the more impressive and interesting. I also feel the fact she commonly imitated wealthy and foppish men in a tongue-in-cheek sort of way would have really appealed to the majority of working-class audiences who would have found this representation highly amusing. It must have been empowering for Annie as a woman to be able to perform social commentary on the upper classes in a time when there were few public roles for women and their opinions were taken far less seriously than the views of men. It's funny, isn't it, that in order to truly feel free, she had to take on the performance of masculinity. Annie Hindle was a true trailblazer in this profession and paved the way for other male impersonators. She even became one of the highest paid acts, earning $100 a week, whereas other performers would make less than half of that. Annie Hindle, as well as being an extremely talented performer, also had a fascinating love life, and is a key person in queer history, as she openly lived and even married women and seemed utterly confident and comfortable in her identity. Her first marriage took place two months after arriving in America when Hindle met the English comic and ballad singer Charles Vivian, who is now best known as being one of the founding members of the Fraternal Order, the Benevolent and Protective Order of Elks. As with many actor-singer couples, they performed together. Annie was better known for her comedy and Charles was lauded for his fine voice. Vivian took on the role of Annie's agent, but this relationship was severed after a mere month of marriage. Later, Annie Hindle would claim that her ex-husband was an alcoholic who had a foul temper and beat her regularly. She was also briefly married to a man called William Long, but of course this did not last for a very long time. Generally following her divorce from Charles, Annie fully embraced her masculine form of gender expression and purposefully lowered her voice, as well as shaving in the hope of her facial hair becoming coarser. Following Hindle's pursuit of a solo career in the variety circuit in 1868, she found work at the Opera House in Baltimore, where she met a jig dancer called Nellie Howard, in late December, they travelled to Washington, where they were married, with Annie giving her name as Charles. Together, they travelled and worked for around eight weeks, performing at the Varieties Theatre in St. Louis during February 1869, but there is no evidence that they ever performed again after this date. We do not know if the marriage ended, but Hindle did publish a poem in 1870 called Parted, that indicated the end of a relationship. In 1870, Annie travelled and worked with a young female singer called Blanche Devere, who she also married, when they were both performing at the Metropolitan Hall in Washington. Using her now familiar alias of Charles E. Hindle, Annie's marriage to Blanche was short-lived 
as Blanche quickly went on to marry James Porter, a business and stage manager at the venue where she had performed with Annie. Blanche must have learnt something from Annie, though, as by 1872 she had launched her own career as a male impersonator, with her husband acting as her agent. Hopefully she had a more positive experience than Annie, who as a young woman had found herself in a similar power dynamic. Annie's next relationship was solidified on the 6th of June 1886, when Kirby Tupper, a Baptist minister, presided over the marriage of Annie Hindle and a young woman named Anna Ryan. As much as I would like to say the minister was aware of Annie's gender and was ahead of his time, he of course was not aware of the groom's true gender, and I feel uh, is a great testament to how convincing her male impersonation was. Also, interestingly, I have a quote from a newspaper which shed some light on the Reverend Brooks who married them and what he thought of the union at the time. Quote, I know all the circumstances, said Reverend Brooks. The groom gave me her, I mean his name, as Charles Hindle, and he assured me that he was a man. The bride is a sensible girl and she was of age. I had no other course to pursue. I believe they love each other and other than that they will be happy. Annie gave her name as Charles E. Hindle and listed her profession as an actor on the marriage licence, which I feel was a brave act that also demonstrates Annie's true sexuality and radical form of gender expression, which was entirely at odds with the conventions of the late 19th century. It did not take long for Hindle's marriage to be revealed in the pages of local scandal sheets, as they were swarmed by the press who were eager to get the story. Hindle was surprisingly calm and continuously denied it. However, her denial could not stop the publication of what had happened, which caused a great backlash across the country. Amazingly, Annie Hindle's marriage did not end her career, and she would go on to perform for another 20 years, and even married another woman later in life. So clearly this early experience had not put her off living how she wanted to live, and also, um, because she was so talented, it did not stop the punters from wanting to see her perform. Some years later, in 1891, a newspaper published an account of the wedding, which reads as followed, quote, In the summer of 1886, Annie Hindle's dresser and faithful companion was a pretty little brunette of 25, a quiet, demure girl who made friends wherever she went. She accompanied Hindle to and from the theatre, and she was a very valuable help to the singer. One night in June 1886, Annie Hindle and Annie Ryan left the Grand Rapids Theatre, where Hindle was then engaged, and drove to Barnard House, where they got married. It feels a little, it feels like a touching and ordinary account of a marriage. In addition, uh, the fact that it was written five years after the marriage makes it seem like a story and something entertaining to titillate the reader and is without the fire and brimstone religious moralising you might expect. I suppose with the passing of time, people's initial disapproval had waned and Annie's marriage to other women had been relegated to a slightly legendary status. 
I am just speculating here, but I do feel it's interesting to assess attitudes to lesbianism in the 19th century as opposed to male homosexuality, which was a serious criminal offence and led to the incarceration of public figures in the theatre world, like Oscar Wilde. It seems love between women was generally frowned upon, but was not considered to be as threatening as love between men. Perhaps this is a reflection of the patriarchal nature of Western society in the 1800s. It was really her fans who kept her career afloat, and would flock to the shows to admire Annie's talent. This community allowed Annie to thrive, as she found an accepting group of people who shielded her from the disapproval of churchgoers and their religious fever. Hindle's relationship with Anna lasted for five years when Ryan died in 1891. The New York Sun covered her funeral and many theatre workers attended, showing she was truly a well-liked individual. However, Hindle did not suffer prolonged mourning and almost immediately sold their house in New Jersey and went on the road, which may have been her way of coping with the passing of her wife. Annie's mother had also died in the 1880s, so she must have felt isolated and a great need to get back to work and continue living. Within one year, newspapers reported on Annie's next marriage to a young woman named Louise Spangle, who, again, Annie worked with in small-time vaudeville, travelling to Virginia in 1894. The wedding was announced in the newspaper and indicates that everyone was fully aware of Annie's gender, yes, it was allowed to proceed somehow, which furthers the narrative that Annie's openly operated outside of social norms and in spite of how unusual her lifestyle was for the time, was allowed to continue. I find the tone of the article quite funny and how blasé uh, it is about the whole thing. It does feel a bit like Annie was a curiosity and people thought she was entertaining and the fact that she was a woman pretending to be a man who married a woman, it somehow made it valid or it was just like a source of fun for people. That's the, that's the impression I get, um, that it's a part of her act even. Definitely not being taken seriously. I mean, yeah, she seemed to be an exception to the rule. So the article reads, Annie Hindle, an English woman of about 52, known as a, quote, male impersonator, was married at Troy to a woman named Louise Spangle. She told the clergyman her name was Charles Edward Hindle. Annie has once, quote, before done the same thing. In fact, once she was a bride, twice she had been a groom. Once she had a husband and twice she had a wife. Once she was a widow, once a widower, and now she is a husband again. So it reads a bit like a riddle, and uh, yeah, take that as you will. Once more, despite the publicity, this did not affect her career or the way theatres thought of her. Annie was supremely talented, and uh, that's all that really mattered. I cannot tell you that they totally embraced her lifestyle, but it is safe to assume that the world of the theatre was far more tolerant and attracted, quote, misfits in society who were seeking alternative forms of expression and a lifestyle that broke societal norms of her period. Annie Hindle passed away in 1897. 
could not find anything about how or where she died or if she and Louise were still together. If you have any information about this, I'd love to know. The sources I use for today's episode are some book extracts from Queering the Field, Sounding Out Ethnomusicology and Queer Episodes in Music and Modern Identity. I also uh, heavily reference the article The Wondrous Life of America's First Male Impersonator. Annie Hindle's scandalised and titillated audiences, but her talents won them over, by Gillian Rogers. Website Drag King History, who also have a bookshop and are accepting donations, uh, was really interesting, uh, sort of rabbit hole to jump down. And I also used the rather morbidly named findagrave.com, who had some interesting primary sources relating to Annie's marriages. I hope you enjoyed this episode. As always, images will be posted on Instagram at the Museum of Femininity. Please keep your eyes peeled for part two of this series, where I will be talking about the life of male impersonator Ella Wesner.